I don't really see the point of pulling any punches, really. We've gotten to a point where I think British society can dish out and it can take it, you know? So you guys are very strange and I don't think you even know how strange you are. <laughs> Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. And our guest for this episode is Zing Tsang, the executive editor of Vice UK. Most recently, Zing ruffled a few establishment feathers with her Empires of Dirt short-form video series about British colonialism. people, mainly black and brown people, for possessing small amounts of drugs like weed. We do this because drugs are bad. Unless, of course, it's your government that's dealing with drugs. Like that time the British Empire got China hooked on opium. But Zing is also a podcaster herself host of United Zingdom on BBC Sounds. Do you know anything about Liverpool? To be honest, I don't really know much about Liverpool beyond the Beatles and banning the sun. And I feel quite embarrassed about that, to be honest, because while I do know, you know, I can sing a Beatles song, it's fine. But I don't really know much about the city and its history beyond that. Zing launched the UK edition of women's website broadly, while her four-book series Forgotten Women explored the untold stories of inspiring women. In the conversation you're about to hear, we discuss the importance of journalists passing the microphone to underrepresented communities, how reporters should handle the issue of identity, and whether we need to decolonize journalism. But first, I asked Zing how she got her start in journalism. Let me think. So I think it just all started at university, really. So. I wasn't doing a degree related to journalism at all. Um, I was at Cambridge and I did social and political science, um, but ended up spending way more time in the offices of the student newspaper, just having fun with my mates, which is the best possible introduction to journalism, I think. So we published a weekly newspaper. We ended up winning some awards from the Guardian Student Media Award, which I don't think is running anymore, which is sad. And I ended up winning the Student Feature Writer of the Year, which was a real kind of surprise and such a compliment because I had never before considered anything that I did goofing off in the office of my mates to be worthy of a prize, um, let alone career consideration. But, you know, I went to this glitzy ceremony in Camden Stable Markets and loads of big name editors shook my hand and said they read my submission and they were really impressed and that kind of planted a seed, I guess. At the time when I graduated, it was sort of the tail end of the recession, the other recession, not the one we're going into right now. And I kind of wasn't really getting much luck with anywhere I was applying to. So I was applying for a ton of advertising grad schemes, not getting anything. Uh, And then I thought, oh, maybe I should just go back to uni classic. Um, always a solid choice in the middle of a recession. Uh, so I ended up doing a master's in journalism, a magazine journalism at City University. And I feel like there was when I really started to take it seriously as a craft and as a career, because they really impressed upon you. You know, you have to learn these skills, you have to learn how to report, you have to learn how to cultivate sources, you have to learn how to structure a story and write news. And they really, really pushed you to kind of focus on where do you want to get employed? Who can you see yourself being employed by? You know, it wasn't like, 
I think if I'd just gone straight into it from my undergrad degree, I would have flailed around for a while and then just given up. But I feel like City kind of really inculcated that kind of rigor in me and, you know, a determination because, you know, you're paying so much money for a master's degree. You kind of have to make it at that point because otherwise it will all have been like the equivalent of chucking bills of money into a furnace. And then after that, I was really fortunate in that an alumnus of City came and gave a talk and his name was Adam Welch. Uh, he was the editor of a magazine called Wonderland, which was a fashion and culture magazine. It's still going now, relatively independent and smaller. It's not the size of, you know, an ID or Dazed. And I really liked what he had to say, really wanted to work in fashion. And I just approached him afterwards and I said, you know, I will literally do anything. Um, he got me in as an intern first. And then after I graduated and I said, you know, could I please stay? He said, well, you know, we, we kind of want to do this website and, you know, this this thing called Instagram and Twitter. And, you know, we kind of need someone young to kind of figure out what to do with it. Can you just do it all? So that was how I became online editor at Wonderland magazine, um, which sounds very impressive now. But if you throw your mind back to 2010, 11, people really didn't know what Instagram was for. I mean, you remember those like hideous filters that everyone put on Instagram photos, you know, like hipstamatic was kind of like just about yeah. hit its peak. Everything had to have a filter. Yeah, had to, everything had to have a filter. Uh, everything had to have a picture frame around it on Instagram. That was a thing for a while. So I was doing all of that and trying to kind of figure out what a magazine should sound like on the internet. And I think that was kind of where... I started getting more interested in digital journalism. And after Wonderland, I spent two years there and I went over to Dazed and Confused to be the first digital news editor, which again sounds very impressive, but was for a while literally just me, a computer doing digital news. And then we hired another staff writer and then we kind of started like building a strategy from there. So I stayed at Dazed for three years, got poached really briefly by a European kind of answer to BuzzFeed called Combini, which was starting up in London, only stayed there for a few months and then got poached by Vice to set up broadly in the UK, which was their feminist vertical, um, which later on got folded back into the overall Vice brand. So when that happened, I became executive editor at Vice UK. How would you distinguish the journalism that you and Vice do to, to the kind of journalism, that, that more conventional traditional journalism maybe that you were you were mostly taught you know in your master's degree um I like to think we're sort of a few months ahead of everyone else and we have our finger on the pulse slightly more um just because our demographic tends to be younger and I think that especially well especially a few years ago there was this kind of idea that oh you know if young people are interested in it if it's happening on the internet it's probably not worth writing about because it's just like a silly internet thing and obviously that's been proven completely wrong, especially with the pandemic. It turns out the internet can actually comfortably occupy quite a lot of your life, especially if you're not going out. And I think that we are kind of at the cutting edge of, you know, breaking stories where people will read about them in some of the publication five months online and think, oh, Vice did this first. Um, and I like to think that we it's because we have a base of really plugged in writers and freelancers who are always kind of telling us what to do. So there will be pitches I get from young people, even students at university. And I think to myself, this is really interesting and it's going to become a huge deal, but nobody else is going to report on it because to everyone else, to like a 40-something, 50-something year old editor, a broadsheet, they probably don't think it's hit the cusp at which 
it's important to start covering something. For us, that cusp is much lower because as long as it's impacting our readers who tend to be younger and more kind of switched on and plugged into whatever's happening like online and in like culture, that passes to grade for us. And is there anything about the way you do your reporting on Vice and the way you tell stories that also differs I think that especially over the last few years, we've gotten much better at passing the mic on to underrepresented communities and people who come from marginalised identities and communities that don't get a fair shake in the UK media. Specifically, I think a lot about the way we've covered uh, trans issues and non-binary issues, um, which is very, very different to how the mainstream broadsheet press covers it in the UK. You know, that coverage of transitions in the UK tends to be quite hostile. I mean, you see this not just in, you know, the usual suspects like right-wing broadsheets or tabloids, but, you know, even in places like The Guardian. But we've always, like, given a fair hearing to people from, you know, the LGBTQ community. Like, broadly, for instance, was the first time I'd ever worked with people who identified as trans or non-binary. So I think we always kind of, you know, the journalism that we do is told in their voices it's given them a platform to like talk about what's important to them and it's also kind of provided an alternative viewpoint to you know the orthodoxy of you know mainstream media and where does that kind of journalism fit when we've got a world of social media where you know those voices can express themselves without having to have a mic given to Mm -hmm. them I like to think that you can bring, like social media is amazing for like giving people a platform to speak. But I like to think that, you know, journalism is still important because it adds rigor to what's being said. So, you know, people can say some things happening. They can say it from their own personal experience and the experience of their social circle. Journalists are the people who dig out the data. They file their freedom of information requests. They, you know, they do the legwork of standing stuff up and substantiating stuff and then they are able to comfortably say hey you know this is a really big deal and more people should be paying attention to it so I think that social media and conventional media have a really really important relationship with each other and you know I think back to when I was at City and part of our news module was you were not allowed to find any news stories at all on social media I don't know if that's still the case I feel like maybe they've changed because I mean how are the students meant to find stories if they're all in lockdown, I don't know. It's something to ask my old journalism tutors. But we were not allowed to use social media to find stories um, because, you know, they thought it was lazy journalism and you would learn so much more as a rookie reporter, like literally pounding the streets. And I think part of that is true. But I also think that so much of life now happens online and on social media. You know, you just look at the storming of the US Capitol. All that stuff was in full-blown organizing activity or online so I think that social media is also really important because it gives you a sense of what's going to happen on the ground in just a few months or weeks time. Sing, what about you yourself then? What are the stories, the themes, the ideas that are getting you excited at the moment? Well, I think right now, especially what excites me is um, ideas about identity in a whole range of different forms. So one thing I'm really interested in is, you know, ideas about British identity and Britishness. And that's something I started exploring in my BBC Sounds podcast, United Zingdom, which until the pandemic happened, was me going around to 
you know, places in the UK and just asking young people, you know, what do you think makes you British? Like, do you feel proud to be British? Do you identify as British? I think that stories like that are just going to become more relevant. I mean, you see it right now, right? I mean, I just saw last week someone tweet, who was it who tweeted a poll being like, should Meghan and Harry be stripped of UK citizenship? Um, I think that was LBC. So I think like these issues of identity and nationalism are going to get more important. And I think especially more so because, you know, there's increasing volume of conversation around Scottish nationalism and, you know, increasingly more young Welsh people I know are talking about Welsh nationalism. You know, there's also the Northern Irish question, which is, you know, an increasing number of people are talking about, you know, why does it make sense? Is there a hard border? Identity has always really interested me. And I think with, you know, the podcast I'm looking at, British identity, uh, with Forgotten Women, I'm looking at female identity, women's identities over the centuries. And I think in general, it's just really, really fertile ground to talk about a whole bunch of different things. Because I'm an immigrant myself, so I know the immigration system quite well. And for me, that's kind of been, I guess, the crucible of where my understanding about identity started happening. Because, you know, I feel like my identity is quite British. When I go to America, people think I'm British. When I came to Britain, people didn't think I was British. But then when I go to Singapore, people consider me British now. So I think it's one of those issues that, you know, was born out of personal experience. And then when you start applying that lens to a whole bunch of other issues like immigration, nationalism, racism, politics, it throws up a ton of really, really interesting questions. What What do you hope to bring as a journalist to this topic of, of identity? I feel like, you know, the topic of identity is so hotly contested and it's become so politicised, right? I mean, you have this entire idea of quote-unquote culture wars that pit certain identities against each other. And I kind of think what that discussion needs is just human stories. I mean, that's fundamentally what journalism is about, right? Like finding human stories. I've been really lucky to have done interviews with people And because of my background, I feel like people are able to open up to me slightly more in a more kind of genuine and authentic way about their identity and how it's affected their lives. So I did um, an exclusive interview with Rina Sawayama, who's a pop star, um, who's British Japanese, and she was excluded from entering the Mercury and the Brits because they didn't consider her British enough, even though she lived here for 26 years, most of her adult, most of her life. Um, And I don't think that you know, I would have been able to do that story if I didn't have an understanding of the immigration situation that she'd been put in, um, which was through no fault of her own, because, you know, she came over here when she was a little girl in her head. She was never anything but British. And I think that as journalists, you have to approach issues like this sensitively and do the reporting, because I think so often it's used as a springboard to project all kinds of petty prejudices and also will reflect a journalist's implicit bias, whether or not it's conscious or not. So I think that if you're able to approach the subject with sensitivity and understanding and also like a willingness to learn more, especially if you're not from the background of the people that you're speaking to, then I think that, you know, you'll be able to add complexity and nuance to something that's mostly been a really, really one dimensional debate. I guess I try and approach things from a perspective of I want people to learn more and I want to tell them something new. And I think so often a lot of journalism is just, you know, reinforcing what people already think or what they sort of feel they know is true, but it might not really be true. So I kind of feel like everything that I've done has been trying to 
make people think critically and teach them new things, which, you know, was entirely, you know, the idea behind Forgotten Women and also the idea behind, you know, United Kingdom and Empires of Dirt, which is um, my short form video series about British colonialism. Lots of these things I didn't know until I started working in that area. I actually learned so much about colonialism through writing Forgotten Women, because it turns out that, you know, if you write a book about forgotten female leaders and revolutionaries, a lot of them are revolting against the British. So I kind of think that that's kind of what I've always brought. You know, I've tried to bring people on a journey of understanding and learning. And it's one that I'm still on as well as a journalist. Hopefully that means that people emerge at the end of it feeling like they've learned something new. With Empires of Dirt, it's probably been the most kind of controversial series of work I've done because it's quite confrontational in tone, you know, because I don't really see the point of pulling any punches, really. We've gotten to a point where I think British society can dish out and it can take it, you know, so that's what Empires of Dirt is there for. Some people really dislike that. Um, but some people say, you know, wow, I actually learned quite a lot that I didn't know before. And that as a journalist is, you know, great. I didn't realise coming here that I would have times of feeling like such an outsider because I think the UK is very, very good at PRing itself, you know, books and films and TV shows made in the UK have travelled all across the world. Um, I think probably even further than a lot of Brits think they have. I remember watching Mr Bean in the queue for the local post office in Singapore. That's how far stuff like that travels. And I think it's really effective at building up this certain image of what Britain is like. And then you come here and you realise that you've got it all completely backwards. Um, and that there's a ton of things that are more important to British people and to Britain than you expect having been on the outside. So when I came here, you know, the idea of people having this much love for a health service was unprecedented to me. We don't feel like that about the NHS, our version of the NHS in Singapore. And, you know, that was something I had to learn. And that was something that was really interesting to learn about why people felt this real affinity with it. And yet at the same time, I find with not giving nurses a pay rise, it's very strange. Um, you know, there's all these kind of quirks that I think don't register as big deals to people who have been born here and lived here for a very long time, but are immediately obvious to people who come in. And I think that's why, you know, there's a long history of people like me coming into the UK and, you know, writing about the UK, because it is a very, very it's a, you, guys, you guys are very strange. And I don't think you even know how strange you are. <laughs> we should just end the podcast there, shouldn't we, really? <laughs> Has it also changed your understanding of journalism in that context? I think that it's not so much the type of journalism practiced, but about the unconscious biases that might inform that journalism. I mean, you know, we've just had the Society of Editors talk about Meghan Marco and Harry's interview saying, calling out prejudice in the British media and, you know, saying that that doesn't exist. If it didn't exist, then what's the point of diversity schemes? Like, surely that's that in itself is an acknowledgement of some kind of some degree of institutional racism and prejudice in the journalism industry. And I think that, you know, these unconscious biases have a huge effect on the way that we cover certain issues. So, so for instance, you know, the issue about Hong Kong and China's like creeping authoritarianism, I mean, not, not even creeping anymore, really, in Hong Kong. And the way that it was covered here, I found quite strange. My mother is from Hong Kong, so I know it quite well. I've interviewed pro-democracy campaigners in Hong Kong. 
what I found really strange was that the understanding of Hong Kong's pretty unique dilemma, um, socio-politically, was completely lacking in the way that the media covered the protests in Hong Kong and also the offering that the UK made to Hong Kongers to come and reside in the UK. So there was, you know, there's no kind of deeper historical understanding of, you know, the opium wars or how that might have influenced China's relationship to Britain and why it's, you know, it can be perceived as being really aggressive in places like Hong Kong. Because if you look at it from mainland China's perspective, from the government there, you know, Hong Kong was always part of China. It was unfairly ripped away from China by the Brits and getting Hong Kong back is seen as a matter of kind of national pride you know there's no kind of deeper understanding of that in the way that the issue has been covered in the UK even though it directly concerns the UK it's been all very surface level so I think that you know there needs to be kind of deeper understanding I think historically especially of the role that the UK has played in politics all over the world because you know don't forget for the longest time like the the British Empire governed loads of it. Um, and loads of the things that are happening in other countries now are kind of the legacy of that colonial enterprise. You know, the UK doesn't really get to wash its hands of it completely because it's still kind of, you know, the after effects are still lingering in a ton of different countries and former colonies. And I think that as journalists, we can be more kind of cognizant of that, definitely. And I also think we can examine how, if you're a British journalist, that legacy of Britain having once controlled these territories and these former colonies can sometimes still play into the reporting and the way that you approach the issues that concern that those form, those countries. It's really difficult. I mean, there is no like handbook on how to be, how to do like decolonized journalism. Maybe there should be. But I think it's definitely something that I've noticed since coming here. Well, I think you've probably given somebody a PhD uh, dissertation idea there uh, <laughs> for sure, Zing. Well, just finally, any advice to our students, other students, young people just aspiring to be journalists in the in this particular moment that, that, that we live? I would say don't compare yourselves to other people in your year group or your cohort, because I think it's really tempting to look at the person who gets a grad scheme job at a broadsheet and seems to sail into their first job and be really envious and say, oh, you know, I didn't get that start. Um my career is going to be like terrible from now on because, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't get that first flush of recognition. It's just not really helpful or productive to like compare yourself against other people in your year because you never know, like a few years down the line, that person might drop out of journalism entirely. Um, they might, you know, go into PR, for instance, or become a politician. That's happened. Um, and I mean, it notably happened in the case of our prime minister. Um so it's never, ever worth comparing yourself against other people. And also it's never worth comparing yourself against people on social media. It's weird because I feel like everyone knows on a surface level that what people put on social media is not the real story. And that it is, you know, exaggerated and self-promotional and, you know, it's for the benefit of promoting that person's brand and image and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But on an unconscious, deeper level, I feel like many of us don't buy that at all. And so you see people posting about their successes on social media and there's a instinct to compare yourself against them and think, well, I haven't posted anything like that, so I must be failing or I haven't achieved that, so I must be failing. And I think it's never, ever worth doing that because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes of someone's social media account. You know, there's a ton of people I know who you might look at their work and think, oh my God, they're really killing it right now. But 
if you know them personally, you know that's not the case. And, you know, the story that they've trumpeted online with huge amounts of fanfare that everyone's giving them crazy amounts of praise for is a story that might have behind the scenes got them in trouble with their editor or, you know, a reader or something like that. So it's never, ever worth comparing yourself against something on social media. Mm-hmm.